In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Brothers, sisters, and viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, and welcome to this, inshallah, new series in our regular gatherings. This one having to do with a topic that we've mentioned quite a few times and we've introduced quite a few times. And this is the topic of the afterlife. Uh, this is the topic that I think we've been waiting to get into. It kind of represents the last chapter, last big theme or big chapter in the lessons that have to do with our system of beliefs. Uh, and inshallah, with this, we can say for those of us who have followed along from the beginning until now that we have completed the, let's call it at least a good introductory uh, excursion or you know, courses into the Islamic belief system. So the the topic that we want to introduce today is not going to delve into the specifics of the afterlife or the hereafter. Sometimes it's referred to as eschatology, life after death, al-ma'ad, alam al-akhirah. All of these are uh, names of the theme, same topic, same theme. Uh, what we want to do today is to concentrate on understanding why this topic is actually important. Why do we need time? Why do we need to invest energy studying the topic of the afterlife? Um, inshallah today at the end of, the, of this session, if this point is clear, then inshallah we will have accomplished our goal and it will serve as a good introduction for actually getting into the topic itself. So, as a, let's call them preliminary remarks before getting into the topic, before the actual introduction. Until now, what we've covered, so that we know how all of this fits in together. We want to know how the topic of the afterlife or the hereafter fits in with everything that we have said until now. We began by explaining the need for religion. We said if we look at the nature of a human being, we will see that they have an intrinsic or natural need for religion. And from there, we started looking at the types of knowledge that human beings have. And those are uh, numbered at, uh, you know, the three, four, five different types of knowledge that human beings have, including the sense perception and what we can build on to create scientific knowledge, natural knowledge, we talked about mystical types of knowledge. We talked about scriptural and revelation types of knowledge. We talked about all the different types of knowledge that a human being may have and what those limitations are for each one of these types of knowledge. How do we use them? Which types of knowledge serve us for what type of human activity or human analysis and thinking? From there, we went into this big topic of worldviews, the manner in which you interpret the world. 
And we said, without going into all the details related to this, we said that at the end, there are two big types of worldview. You either see the world in materialist terms, or you see the world in theistic terms. In other words, the world, when you interpret reality, when you look at your place in the world, it is either a world with God in the center, or it is a world with no God, which means there's only matter. Depending on the type of world that you believe in, you're going to live your life differently. The worldview is the set of things you believe in that allow you to interpret the world, to understand your experience in the world. And then from that, depending on what you believe in, you're going to act differently. Every action that you take depends on what you believed in. And this belief is either a materialist belief or a theistic belief. Either a belief with everything is matter or comes back to matter and materialist entities, or you believe in a type of world that has God in the center. And everything else revolves around that understanding and that. And from there, of course, we spent a lot of time explaining properly the different ideologies and materialism, and we looked at specific uh, issues, specific big questions, the beginning of existence, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of life, the beginning of human beings, and how are they different from the rest of creation, and so on and so forth. So this is all stuff that we built on and we completed. From there, we went to understanding God. So we proved the existence of a God, and then we proved what kind of God it is. Because we said there could be a lot of different understandings and images of what God you are believing in. You may believe in a force that you consider to be part of the universe. Some people believe in a God that is the universe. Some people believe that there is a God, but it's not a personal God. He does not know that you exist or does not care that you exist. So you can't really pray to that type of God. It's just a type of force that allows everything to exist and it gives it its design and so on and so forth. But there's no intimate personal relationship with that type of God. So we went through the different attributes, safat, that we can give to this God that we want to believe in, all based on rational, philosophical, logical arguments, so that we understand what type of God are we talking about. Is it the old man with a big white beard sitting in the clouds? Is that the God we believe in? Of course not, right? So we went through all of that. These were some of the things that we studied under the attributes of God. And one of the attributes around which we spent a lot of time was the attribute of justice. Because we said this is one of the big contentious issues in religion, where people have trouble reconciling between the problem of evil in the world, harms in the world, difficulties in the world, and the existence of a God. How can you believe that there is a God who is good and merciful and compassionate and wise and powerful and knowledgeable, and yet you still feel that the world is filled with difficulties and harms and evils? Why would that God create this type of world or allow these difficulties to happen? And we spent you know, a good seven to 10 lectures on this, to properly understand these issues because a lot of people end up having either very weak faith in God or they reject the belief in God entirely because they don't understand 
the issues related to the problem of evil in the world. With that, we finished the part of theology, of beliefs, that is usually referred to as ilahiyat, that you study to understand God and questions and issues and articles of faith related to God. And we went to the second big question that human beings have. The first one being, where do I come from? In one word, the answer to where do I come from is God. Or when you study it in the classic way, when we grew up and we study Usul al-Din, it's called Tawheed. The answer, the question of Tawheed, Tawheed is the answer to a question. The question is, where do I come from? It's the origin. That's the first question that is universal in human beings. All human beings have these three big questions. Where do I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Where do I come from? The answer is the Tawheed, everything that we just talked about. The second question is, what am I doing here? Why am I here and what am I supposed to do? And the answer to this question in one word, it's when we refer to it in Arabic as Nabuwa, it's prophethood. In detail, what we study in there is why does a human being need religion? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us all these senses. He gave us logic and reason. He gave us tools to understand the world. Why do I need something else? With this, I should be able to figure out how I'm supposed to live and right and wrong. Why do I still need something more than that? And the answer is what we discussed and what we studied in the big heading of Nubuwa. So we started to look at why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send a message to human beings through other human beings. We refer to them as prophets, and messengers, rusul, and they have to have certain characteristics, certain traits. For that person to be believable, to have credit, to carry a valid message that people consider credible, they have to have certain characteristics. And this was the heading of infallibility, of asma. I have to be able to rely on this person entirely. I have to be able to know that this is actually someone sent from God. I need some sort of sign. I need a miracle. I need something that confirms that only someone sent from God could be doing the things that this person is doing. And therefore, this validates the message that they are bringing to me from their Lord. These are the questions that we looked at when we looked at the topic of prophethood. We said prophethood is split in two big themes. There's general prophethood, where you study these questions that relate to all prophets, that relate to prophethood in general. And then you look at every specific prophet to see how are they different from the others. So you study them, their personality, their miracle, their people, their time. And you see this is the specific prophethood that we said we don't have time to look at all the prophets right now. Inshallah, we'll come back and look at them. But the one that we did spend on time on is our own prophet, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu We said he is the last of the prophets, so we looked at his prophethood specifically. We established in what sense is he a prophet? How is he a prophet? What are the proofs of his prophethood? You remember we talked about you know, his character being one, the prophecies of previous people, the miracles that he performed, and then we spent time discussing this miracle specifically. So we looked at the Holy Quran from different angles. How is the Qur'an a miracle? In what sense? We looked at in what, how can we prove or demonstrate or know for sure that the Holy Qur'an is authentic? 
that this is the same scripture and message that was given to the prophet that was communicated to us, right? So, and with all of this, we came back to conclude the topic of the prophethood of the Holy Prophet with the big themes of the eternity and universality of his message or his scripture and his guidance to human beings. So the difference, the big difference between his message and the messages of previous prophets is that his message does not end. It will not be replaced by the message of another prophet because there is no other prophet. This was the topic of the sealing of prophethood, khatm. In what sense is he a khatm? And we talked about that in detail. And we talked about what we mean when we say that Islam is universal, what we mean when, is, when we say Islam is eternal. Okay? From there, we added that in the case of the prophethood of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu there's another cycle. After the cycle of prophethood ends with the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad, there's another, another cycle that begins, and this one is a cycle of imamah. And we talked why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala add to the message that he sent to humanity through Prophet Muhammad, why is there a need for more? We talked about the distortions and the lacks and the problems that occurred even in the life of the Holy Prophet that meant that he is not always going to be able to provide and give and present and expose all the teachings of this religion to humanity. It doesn't work. The society in which he lived does not understand these things, will not always be able to capture them in a way that they fully understand them and then transmit them to the next generations. We talked, for instance, about a topic as simple and as non-political as wudu, for instance, and how much difference there is between the Muslims about a topic as simple as that. So if that's the case, then how about other topics where there is a lot of vested interest, where people may lose power or money or status if they say the Prophet did this or did not do that? And the more you look at these things, the more you see there was a very specific situation that meant Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to complete this religion in a way that is very clear to the rest of humanity. So that no one can come later and say this message did not reach them properly. So, and this is again, not a problem in the Holy Prophet himself presenting his message, but it's the people receiving that message. Were they ready for everything that he was teaching? And did they understand from the teachings of the Prophet how to apply to every situation that would ever happen later on? the teachings that he gave them, or were they too theoretical and too abstract? And so when you have 12 Imams after the Prophet, they show you how the teachings that the Holy Prophet brought to humanity are to be applied in everyday situations, day-to-day -day situations. And we concentrated on the Imama of two Imams specifically. The first Imam, because once this is established, then we've established all of Imama, and what we say for him goes for the rest of the Imams, and this is Imam Ali alayhi salam. And then we talked about the last of the Imams, Imam al-Mahdi And he is, the reason why we talked about him is because he is the Imam of our time. And we said that what is most problematic about his Imam to the majority of people is that he is in occultation, he is in ghaybah. So how does that work? What does that mean? How do we explain that? How do we believe in something like that? And we looked at that from different angles. And we complemented this with another lecture that had to do with how are we supposed to live in a time of Rayla when the Imam is not there? When the Imam is not someone that we can consult and talk to and address directly, how are we supposed to live? What does it mean to live in a time of Rayla of your Imam? 
So with this, we have basically covered everything that we have presented until now. And then we said that the next big topic that we want to address is the topic of the afterlife. So for those who want to go back and look, the lectures are online. This was this is today lecture 71. So these this was presented in 70 lectures until now. And of course, always open to going back and refreshing as the need arises. So where do we want to go from here? What is this topic of the afterlife that we want to talk about? As we said today, the main point that we want to leave with is that studying the afterlife, the question of the afterlife, thinking about it, studying it, and having an answer to is there an afterlife, is there a hereafter or not, is of the utmost importance. It's one of the most crucial questions that you need to answer for yourself in this life. That's all we're trying to establish today. So we want to see why is this an important question? Where am I going? Why is this an important question? So we're going to look at it from quickly from a rational point of view, and we're going to see now that we've established and we've proved everything that we just mentioned. So there is a God and there is prophethood and revelation and Prophet Muhammad is a prophet, and the Qur'an is a scripture from God, because all of those things have been established now, we're going to start using the proofs from the Holy Qur'an a lot more than we were. Because until now, until the lectures that have to do with the, uh, the validity, the authenticity of the Holy Qur'an, we only relied on rational proofs, right? From now on, because this is well established, We've presented convincing arguments that the Holy Qur'an is authentic, that it is from God, and that it was brought to humanity from a valid, authentic, convincing prophet, then we can now rely on the Holy Qur'an as an additional source, in addition to the arguments and the points that we present based on reason alone, which gives us a much more complete picture. So now we're not only going to start talking about the afterlife, only based on reason, we're also adding a Quranic component. So as an introduction to this topic, the first point is that when we talked about what a human being is, we said a human being is a creature that is able to ask deeper, more existential questions. We said a lot of things, but this was one of the important conclusions. A horse, for instance, or a tree, is not going to sit there thinking, where do I come from? And is there life after death? And how am I supposed to live? They live based on their chemical and their biological reactions and the laws of nature. A human being has that additional preoccupation. It's psychological, it's a lot deeper, and it actually has a very big impact on the way he perceives himself and his life. It means a lot for his level of happiness. We were trying to make is to understand the difference of being a human being. If we are human beings, we said from the beginning that human beings are creatures that are able to act based on a voluntary will. We're deciding as we act as human beings, we're deciding how to act and when to act. I always have a choice. Do I do or do I not do? The actions that a human being performs 
are going to be based on their belief system. Every action that you make is going to be based on your belief system. You can look at very, very simple acts that human beings perform. For instance, if you wanted to look at, I don't know, someone brushing their teeth. You might think that this is a very trivial, very simple act. But the fact that you're going to decide whether to brush your teeth or not is going to be entirely based on your belief system. Every act that you perform is going to be based on your belief system. In what sense? When you act, you believe that that action is going to be in your best interest. It's going to complete you. It's going to give you happiness, however you want to say it. If at that moment you're deciding whether to brush your teeth or just go to bed, if at that moment you're giving greater value and greater happiness to your rest in bed than to the health of your teeth, you're going to go to bed. And if you decide that at that point that the health of your teeth is more important, then you are going to brush your teeth even though you really want to go to bed right now. And what's the difference? Why would one person decide one and one person decide the other? Why would one person at that point decide, I'm going to brush my teeth and the other is going to say, I'm going to go to bed? It's because of their belief system. It's because of the value that you gave to rest versus health at this point. One person is looking at the immediate, one person is looking at the long term. Or they want to avoid pain that they've experienced before. Or, or, or. But bottom line is, it may look trivial, but the act that you performed or did not perform is always based on the belief system. And this goes for things that are extremely simple and it goes for things that are much more complicated. The point we were making is that a human being, when they are in this world, whatever they do, whatever act a human being performs in this world, comes entirely from their belief system. From the simplest, most trivial act, like brushing your teeth, to the most deep, complex uh, issues that are life-determining and you're deciding, do I go in this way and in this path in my life or in another direction? We may not think that it all derives from our belief system, but it does. So this is a first point that we have to keep in mind, and we've talked about this at length in the past. We said that the ones, the beliefs that we looked at specifically are where, did, where do we come from and what are we doing here? or the belief of monotheism, tawhid, and prophethood, nubuwa. This tells us where did I come from and what am I doing here? Is this not enough? With this, I should be able to know how to live. What's the issue? What's missing? What is so special or distinctive about the afterlife and understanding the afterlife that we really need? that we still haven't touched and we think that it's so important to spend time studying. The link between the afterlife and what I do as a person, as one person, is going to be very important. And inshallah, we're going to look at that in detail. And then the, the link between your belief as a society or as a community, your collective belief in the afterlife is also going to have 
a very big impact on how you live as people. And inshallah, we'll get, we'll get into that, the details of this. But if you're someone who believes that there is something awaiting you after you die, you're not going to make the same decisions, especially when it comes to things like your ethical behavior, your moral behavior, whether you show compassion or not, whether you show charity or not, whether you show generosity and you help others or not, because of your belief system and your value system, you're going to decide, do you deal with life and others as from a selfish point of view, it's all about you and it's all about the material aspects of life that you need to get more of all the time. So power and wealth and status and so on and so forth, because that's all there is. Or is there something more after this life? And it's, is it all about the rat race of running to acquire as much as you can before your time is up and then everything ceases to exist? Or does every act you perform, is it going to translate into something after you die? And if that is the case, then it makes a difference how you get to, a, to whatever you want to get. Let's say you want wealth. If you do it in a certain way, you may not hurt anyone and you get wealth, but it's a much longer, much harder way, perhaps. And there's another way to do it that basically gives you a shortcut and you can do it a lot faster, but there's a lot of people who might get hurt in the process. For instance, stealing. So which one do you choose? It depends on your value system. It depends on what you consider right and wrong. It depends on if you believe that there's something after you die or not, because a lot of people will think that they will be able to get away with whatever in this life. People who have power, people who have money, people who have connections, people who have status can get away. Imagine you're a tyrant. Imagine you're someone who has all the means and all the tools and you can decide and there's no one who can catch you or if they catch you, they can't do anything about it. What prevents you from living however you feel like? Is it simply that you're in fear that others may retaliate? That's one way, perhaps, and that's one level of ethics, which is not really ethics. Or if someone has a belief system that basically tells them there's nothing that you do in this world that's ever going to be lost, that there will always be a complete justice that will be reestablished after you die. Whatever you did here is going to come back to haunt you and be associated with you after you die. Good, you get good. Bad, you get bad. Well, you can't live in the same way. There is no way that people who believe in those two very different worldviews are going to live in the same way. And if you take that to the level of society, then in a society where everybody actually believes that if you're harming others, you're going to be harmed, that if you do good to others, you're going to be rewarded and be, good done, be done good to, then in those cases, you really don't need a lot of policies and laws and guidelines in those societies. Because there is an intrinsic goodness from the people because of their belief system. That's if you truly have a society where there's a very high level of belief in those things. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases in this world, you have a lot of people who say we are believers, but it's not real belief. They say that they are believers or they may know something rationally. They can prove it to you logically, but they don't believe in it. Someone may tell you, for instance, what do you believe is going to happen to someone who dies? Does their body move and can it do anything? And they'll tell you no. 
it's a dead body, it's just part of, you know, it decomposes and there's nothing that happens. But if you tell them, okay, are you willing to spend the night alone beside this dead body? The majority of people would say no. It would not feel right spending a night alone beside the dead body of someone. Why? What's the difference? They don't, they tell you, I have knowledge. I know for sure this body, this person is dead. I know nothing is going to happen. That's true. They know, logically, they know. Do they have belief that this person is dead? No. They don't, they don't have any rational, logical reason to think this body is going to move. But in their heart, at the level of real belief, at the level of their actions, they have a doubt. Because of whatever reason, they have a doubt. Their mind plays tricks on them. They've heard stories, whatever it may be. And this is where you see the difference between knowledge, which could be rational and logical, and belief. You may have knowledge. You may be able to prove logically that there is a heaven and hell. But that's very different from having true belief that there is heaven and hell. Acting accordingly. And this is no different from the person who tells you, for instance, do you know that cigarettes are bad for you? They tell you, yes. You believe that they are bad for you. This is the question. Are you feeling the pain? And some cases, yes, they do believe but they're still willing to because of their belief system. Because they think that the happiness that comes from doing the harm is still greater than the harm that they're getting. And in other cases, no, they don't have any belief in it. They have the theoretical knowledge, but as the belief starts to take shape because they're starting to suffer, for instance, their health starts to suffer, this is when the belief starts. And then they say, okay, I have to stop. And they really stop. This is where you have to distinguish between the knowledge and the belief. In any case, we'll talk more about that in detail. For all of this to work, we are going to need one very big important topic to be introduced and, and well established before we go into the whole discussion about the arguments of why is there an afterlife, what happens after we die, and so on and so forth. And that discussion is establishing that we actually have a soul. Establishing that there is more to the human being than just this body. Once this is established, then we can build on that every other point that has to do with the afterlife. So is there an afterlife or not? What happens after we die? What do we mean when we say reward and punishment? What's the relationship between something you do here and what happens after you die? What type of life is it after we die? When we say afterlife, what type of life is it? What does it look like? What are the laws? What are the principles that govern that world? Are they the same principles that we have in this world? The laws of nature, as we call them here, are they the same principles in that world or are they completely different? Before we talk about all of this, and we will, inshallah, this is what's coming, the first topic that we have to address and reach a conclusion about is, do we have a soul or not? Is there a part to the human being that is not physical or not? Are we only this body or is there more to us? And that will be inshallah the first big topic that we address in a couple of lectures to make sure that once this is established, then we can jump into all the rest of the topics.
So the importance of believing in the afterlife. A human being is always going to move, as we said, towards what they consider to be in their best interest, which means everything they do is going to be relying on their belief system of where their best interest lies. That part should be clear. When I act, if I look at every specific act on its own, there's nothing that holds all of these together that makes me move in a certain direction. These are scattered acts. Each act on its own is random. I'm reacting to something happening, for instance, in my life, at this moment, at this point in time. All of these acts, to understand the meaning of when we said you are a human being, you have a free will, you get to choose what to do based on your belief system. Therefore, it becomes extremely important to understand your belief system, to know how you act, for the acts to be coherent, to be logical based on the belief system, there is an ingredient that you need, and that ingredient is direction. It brings all of your acts together and points them in one direction. And that direction is the answer to your question, where am I going? If you know where this life is going in general, the direction in which this life is moving, then all your acts become directed in that direction. Because now you know where life is going. It's not about what this action is doing on its own and that action doing on its own. It's all of your actions together. They're moving your life, all of it, with all parts in it, are moving in one direction. And that direction is, well, what happens after you die? If you have an answer to that question, you have just given an orientation, a direction to your whole life. You've given a meaning to your life, and therefore a meaning to every act in your life. And it's up to you to reconcile that, to find a way to act in a way that is always in that direction. Okay, and this has to do with a quick discussion we had last time we met, when we said, you know, when you do things in this world, how do you balance between this world and the next? Inshallah, this will be a good topic of discussion that we continue. So the type of life that you're going to live is going to depend. Depend based on the direction that you believe in. If you believe that your whole life is going in a certain way, which ends up bringing you in another world, you're not going to live in the same way as someone who says it's going to a direction only to the point where you die. And then when you die, nothing happens. You're not going to live in the same way. And this is a difference between believing and not believing in the afterlife. This is all at the rational level. And so I'm not going to go into all the details on how you see all of this manifest itself in people's lives. I think anyone can think about the differences between someone who believes there's something waiting for you after you die, there's a life after this life, or, and with someone who does not believe that. You see that in every aspect of life. One topic that's very popular nowadays, for instance, is mental health. At the level of mental health, take the example, this is not an example, this is a true story, but let's say it's an example. You have people sitting in a plane, that plane is about to land, and the pilot comes on the mic and he tells everyone, we are having a problem. 
the wheels of the plane seem to be jammed. We can't unlock the wheels. We have to do an emergency landing without wheels. We're sorry, brace yourselves. Hopefully, you know, we'll minimize the damage. Now, imagine the person who has a belief system with a God in the middle, with knowing how you're supposed to live and who thinks, who believes that they have lived according to the way they're supposed to. And now they are faced with, in a matter of instance, most likely, knowing, realizing that they're about to die. But they know what's waiting for them because of their belief system. They know what kind of world is awaiting them. They believe that they've done good and they will be rewarded for good. And now death is happening. Death is inevitable. There is no difference whether you're good, bad, it's going to happen to everyone. So you come to that realization versus someone who does not have that type of belief system. Let's say they're entirely, they have an entirely materialist point of view. So they think that everything is going to end the moment this plane crashes. Do you think those two people are going to deal mentally with what's going to happen in the same way? If you know that you're about to die and that's it, you cease to exist versus you think that you're about to die, but you consider death simply a bridge to the next world. You think those two people are dealing with these issues in the same way? Of course not. The person who believes that I'm going to die and I've lived my life according to the manner in which I'm supposed to live, and now I'm going to meet my compassionate, merciful God, and I will end up being justly treated by that God, and death is something that is just part of the natural order of things, this is going to give you a lot more strength, a lot more resilience in dealing with something as deep as death. And you see that happening if you study, if you are able to put a camera in that plane, and you will be able to pinpoint the differences between people. And this is what, in this specific story, as we said, consider it an example, the plane actually, the pilot came back on, and the last seconds, the wheels unjammed and the plane landed safely, no issues. The ambulance came, the doctors came, a lot of people were yelling and screaming and crying, obviously, it was a very traumatic experience for a lot of people. But many of the people who had very traumatic experiences were the people who thought everything was going to end. Not the people who thought this is just part of the natural order of things and I'm going to move on and this is just a bridge and a phase to move on to the next phase of life. But of course now we're talking about someone who has the true belief. We're not talking about the person who has knowledge of but without the true belief. This is where you see the difference. So people who are always wondering about where do you get the fortitude and the resilience and the strength of mind to deal with the difficulties of life, well, this is one of them. How strong is your belief in the afterlife? It's going to change entirely the way you perceive the world and your place in it and how to deal with things coming your way. Because you know nothing is lost, that there's a God who is seeing everything and he's all powerful and all knowledgeable and all wise and merciful and everything is in his hands. And if it's a difficulty, it's part of the tests, but nothing is lost and you're going to get rewarded for all of your efforts, regardless of the outcome. So there's never a worry. Even the difficulties, you're just getting more reward for them. Okay, so you go through those in life, 
and then you move on to the next life and you get the reward that you've been accumulating your whole life, which is a completely different worldview than someone who thinks I'm going through this difficult life, it's all pointless, it's all meaningless, and then you die at the end and that's it, you cease to exist. And so the best way to, to live your life is just to, if I have to lie and cheat and take whatever and do whatever to people, so long as I get the happiness I feel I'm entitled to, that's all that matters. Because at the end I die and nothing happens anyways. There's a very big difference in the way you're going to live and in the way you acquire your happiness in this life and your peace of mind, your tranquility of mind in this life, depending on whether you think there is something waiting for you or not after you die. And as we said, this works at the level of the individual and it works at the, at the level of a society. You can actually get a lot of people who believe in that type of afterlife together and they actually have real belief you don't need laws to govern those people. You need very minimal laws because a lot of it will come instinctively from within. No one is trying to harm anyone else because they see that as harming themselves in their afterlife, right? So I think the importance is, is obvious enough. I'm not gonna dwell at it too much on this. Why is there such an insistence in religion on the topic of afterlife? If you go to the verses of the Quran, if you go to the stories of the prophets, some scholars say they spent more time, prophets spent more time and more energy trying to convince their people of the afterlife than they did about God. And some say it's kind of equal. So why? What is this insistence from prophets on the topic of the afterlife? Why is it so important? Which to us means we have to spend more time understanding why is it so important. And there's a number of reasons for this. We're going to talk about that in a second. The other topic that goes with this, the other topic is that sometimes you might think, I have enough just knowing where I came from, God, what am I doing here, prophethood? And that there's something that happens after I die. And we'll find out when we get there. I don't really need the details. Is this enough? And the short answer is it cannot be enough. Because what you believe is going to happen after you die is going to change. Some people, for instance, they believe that, yeah, there is a life after death, but it's, for instance, reincarnation. So you keep coming back into this or that living entity, depending on how you lived your life. Some people think that maybe after you die, you are brought back and you're going to live a life like this one, just different, where you get to choose and you get to act and you get to do. And it might be a better life or a worse life that you're going to live based on how you lived this life here. These are very different ways of understanding the afterlife than saying, for instance, you're going to live a life where you can no longer act. There is nothing left for you to do except to receive the rewards, the repercussions, the punishment, whatever it may be that you did in this life. These are not the same types of afterlife. If you think that you're going to live an afterlife 
where you're still going to decide and act and do, you're not going to live the same way here as someone who thinks there is nothing for you to do there. You're going to wish that you could have done. But there, once you're there, you're going to see that there's nothing left for you to do. All you can do over there is to receive what you did here. Well, you can't live the same way. And that's why it's not sufficient just to believe. Just like when we talked about God and we said, it's not enough to say, yeah, I believe in God. Okay, but what type of God? Is your God the universe? Is your God a force? Is your God the God of the philosophers who don't believe that you can have an interaction with that God, an intimate personal relationship? You can't pray to that God. But he exists and he makes the world the way it is. But he doesn't know that you exist or care that you exist. He's not concerned with you. Or is it the God of the religions and the God of the prophets who talks to you, who answers your prayers, who may even perform miracles for you? The same thing here. You can't just stop at the level of thinking, yeah, there's something that happens after I die. The details, not important. Well, some of the details are important. It's going to completely change how you live depending on what you believe those details to. And that's why we need to spend a little bit of time studying this uh, question. As we said, the topic is extremely important in the scripture, the Holy Quran, the scholars tell us there's between 1,400 and 2,200 verses of the Quran that have to do with the afterlife. So in short, the majority of scholars without giving you these numbers, you have to sit and count these, they just say about a third of the Qur'an has to do with the afterlife. Just to give you an idea of the importance the Qur'an gives, directly and indirectly, talking about the afterlife. A third, 33% of the Qur'an has to do with the afterlife. Some verses of the Qur'an, for instance, they say, and we can put these in categories. One category is the verses that talk just in general about the afterlife and how important that belief is. They say, for instance, those who are pious and who believe in what has been sent down to you and what has been sent down before you. So you think those are people who believe in God and they believe in the revelation. They're pious. No, but the Quran adds another condition of their belief and it says, and who are certain of the afterlife. It's not just a belief. They have certainty that there is an afterlife. That's the third condition of being pious. The verses of the Quran, and there's a lot of verses about that. Other verses of the Quran, they talk about the consequence of not believing. What happens if you don't believe? The Quran in one verse says, indeed, those who do not believe in the afterlife surely deviate from the path. Okay, so you can take that metaphorically and you say the path is the guidance of Allah. Just not believing in the afterlife means you're going to lose your guidance. Or you can take that literally. There are a lot of scholars and we have ruwayat, narrations that tell us the path is actually like a bridge or a pathway that you're going to, to walk on in the afterlife. And so when the Qur'an says these people are going to deviate from the path, it means you cannot make it all the way to the end. And in the end, you enter paradise. So those who, very clearly, indeed those who do not believe in the afterlife. 
will surely deviate from the path. Even though you may believe in everything else, if that part of your belief system is missing, you're not going to make it. Rather, they deny the hour, and we have prepared a blaze for those who deny the hour. They may, the hour being the hour of judgment or the day of judgment, Yom al Those people who deny, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we've prepared a punishment for them. Maybe they believe in everything else. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, you need to believe in the afterlife as well. Many verses in the Quran, I'm going to jump over these. Many verses of the Quran talk about the fact that there are eternal bounties and blessings waiting for those who believe in the afterlife. And the verses of the Quran that talk about the eternal punishment waiting for those who deny the afterlife. There are verses of the Quran that talk about the relationship between good and bad deeds. And, you know, there are many examples of this where, you know, if you do good and if you do bad, what does that mean? Does that count as one? Does that count as one? And then you go in the afterlife and then you get a little bit of punishment and a little bit of good, or how does that work? You need to look at that. We will, inshallah. Consequences of the good deeds. So if you do something good, what do you get? What do you actually get? What is this thawab that everybody talks about? The Quran talks about. What is the thawab? What does it look like? What about the bad deeds? How are they rewarded, compensated in the afterlife? We'll look at that, inshallah. Answering objections of the deniers. There are verses of the Quran, and those are going to be some of the first verses that we're going to look at. There are verses of the Quran that say, here are all the objections of the people who say there cannot be an afterlife. The Quran presents them like rational arguments. It says there are people who don't believe in the afterlife for this reason, for this reason, for this reason. And the Quran answers them logically. Not, we're not going to say we believe in those answers because they are the Qur'an. We're going to look at those from a logical, rational point of view to see what is the argument that the Qur'an is presenting from those people and how it, is it refuting them? How is it answering that objection? And then there are very interesting, there are verses of the Qur'an that say one of the main causes of the misguidance of people is that they don't believe in the in this world. The way people act, brings us back to our belief system, the way people act in this world is based on the fact that they don't believe in an afterlife. In one verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to Prophet Dawood that he made a king. Prophet Dawood became a king. So he's not only a prophet, he's also ruling over people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to him. He tells him that, oh David, Indeed, we have made you a vicegerent, a khalifa, on the earth. So judge between the people with justice. And do not follow desire, or it will lead you astray from the way of Allah. Indeed, those who stray from the way of Allah, there is a severe punishment for them. Why? Because of their forgetting of the day of reckoning. Because they have forgotten the afterlife, there is a punishment for them. And in another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to those people in the afterlife. Now we are there. Allah is telling us what's going on and he's talking to the people of hell. He tells them, so taste the punishment for your having forgotten the encounter of this day. We too have forgotten you. So what happened? Those people forgot, denied, in other words, that there's an afterlife. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world, when this happened, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I forgot them. What does that mean? Allah is not 
know, forgetful in that sense. It means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to include them when he guides people. He's going to let them be because that's what they chose. You chose that, I'm going to let you. So we have forgotten them. Taste the everlasting punishment because of what you used to do. So why is it so important? Why do the prophets and specifically the Holy Quran, why do they insist so much on the afterlife? First reason, the afterlife is of the dimension of the unseen. It's not of the things that you can just talk about, like, I don't know, nature, where everything is in front of you and you don't need much convincing that it's there because you experience it. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Holy Quran, He talks about things that are not of the seen world, not of the material world, He insists on them. He comes back and He presents them in all sorts of different ways. Because they're kind of far-fetched to a lot of people. And they need a lot more convincing. So you see the Quran coming back again and again. When it talks about certain things that are important, but of the unseen, the human being requires a lot more convincing, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him a lot more proofs, and a lot more verses, and a lot more stories, and a lot more details, until it becomes clear that this is really how it is. That's one reason. The second reason that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala insists on this, and the prophets do too, is that this is the one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, for people to live one way or another. The human being is looking for an excuse. If you believe, as we said, in a certain outcome, you're going to live your life a certain way. There's a verse in Surah Al-Qiyamah. It says, does a human being think that we shall not assemble his bones? So it's talking about the afterlife. Does he not think that basically we're going to resurrect him in the afterlife? Most assuredly, we are able to perfectly restore the very tips of his fingers. Okay? And then the next verse, but the human wishes to go on doing wrong. The reason he is denying there's an afterlife is because he wants to go on doing wrong. The moment I open the door to the possibility that there's an afterlife, now I'm stuck living my life in a certain way. I cannot just go on doing injustice and corruption and stealing and hurting others and lying and cheating because now I'm stuck with an outcome. But if there's no outcome and there's no afterlife, I can live however I want. I'm not bound by anything. So the Quran is very clear here. Does he not think? So in other words, no, he does think. But the human being wants to go on living like he wants to live. So he doesn't allow himself consciously to open the door to believing in an afterlife because now he's going to be stuck living based on certain laws and certain ethics and certain morals. So he doesn't want to do that. Okay, that's the second reason. And maybe a last one. And this is where the Holy Quran is always insisting at the level of those who have power, the elites of society, those who can really make a difference, those who have political power, financial power, legislative power, social, religious, look at all the societies. The Quran refers to these people usually as al-mala'a. They're the elites. They're the status, 
the, the class of people who are usually around the Fir'aun, around the king. Those who are, as soon as something happens and a prophet comes to, to tell them, I want to guide you to God, he turns to those people and he tells them, what do you think? What should I do? And they are, they are usually the people who have the most to lose or the most to gain. And they are the ones who are going to influence and do everything they can so that the, remain, the, the, the situation remains the same. It's status quo. They will fight to the death. And they will impact everybody who is related to them, uh, impacted by them. Because they control the means, because they have such an influential position, of course they are going to decide and to propagate a certain message and a certain lifestyle and a certain social structure and religious structure as was happening before. And it was the same thing in the time of the Holy Prophet as it was with all the other prophets, and it continues today. And this is where the Holy Quran, when it talks, it needs to talk to those people specifically too. Okay, so these are three layers, but again, you know, the maintenance of power can be subsumed under, uh, you know, not wanting to feel the responsibilities, but the Quran insists on those people in a lot of cases. There's also, the Quran talks about the use of language and theories and discourse that gives the impression that maybe this is not what we think it is. So the religious point of view is going to be that there is a life after this life and justice is going to be fully reestablished. So you have to live according to certain ethics and morals and principles here. There are people who are going to come and say, you're kind of wasting your time. If you want to really make a difference. Why don't you concentrate on this world? Why don't you build this world? Why don't you create your paradise that you're aspiring to create it here? And if you read some of the literature, say from the times of the communists, for instance, and it, it, it exists in a lot of different ideologies, they insist on this. If you want to work, if you want to put energy, if you want to put time, why don't you put it in this world and in this time and in this life and create the paradise that all human beings aspire to, create it here. Why are you aspiring for something that really is fictional? The toned down version of this is that there is truth to what the Quran is talking about or religion in general is talking about, but it's metaphorical. There's not really a life waiting for you after. This is all supposed to be to get you to do good and to avoid evil. And everything else is just a poetic, metaphorical language that is supposed to help you move in that direction, give you the imagery and the poetic, metaphorical, uh, you know, thinking required for a normal human being to move in that direction, to do good and avoid bad and so on and so forth. And the Quran talks about this too. If you read the verses of certain verses of the Quran, they seem to be talking about this. In one verse, it says, for instance, certainly we and our fathers were promised this before. So now they're answering their prophet. A prophet comes to their people and he tells them there's an afterlife and there's a heaven and hell. And they tell him, we were and our fathers promised this before. We've heard about this. But these are just myths of the ancients. In other verses, 
As for him who says to his parents, fie on you. Do you promise me that I shall be raised from the dead when generations have passed away before me? And they invoke, invoke Allah's help and say, Woe to you, believe indeed Allah's promise is true. But he says these are nothing but myths of the ancients. Another verse. And thus did we make for every prophet an enemy, evil ones from humans and jinn who inspire each other with a flowery discourse. The ideas and the language used, it's flowery, it's beautiful, it's very attractive. Through deception. There's a deception in it. Its language is being used to present things in a manner that tricks you. That's the point, to deceive you. Had your Lord so planned, they would not have done so. So leave them and their forgeries alone. To such deceit, let the hearts of those who do not believe in the hereafter. So now you know that the trickery is about not believing in the afterlife. Let their hearts, the hearts of those who do not believe in the afterlife, incline and let them earn from it what they need. Conclusion. The reason why this topic is important is that if you want to truly be the human being that we said you're supposed to be, to live according to your belief system in a coherent way, you have to find an answer for yourself to this question. You have to answer this question for yourself in a convincing way. Is there an afterlife or not? And what does that afterlife look like? If you don't reach conclusions, if you don't reach an answer to these questions, there's something incomplete in your worldview. There's something incomplete in the manner in which you're going to live. Something is missing that will not allow you to live your life coherently, even if you believe in a God and in a prophethood. That's one. So that's the first point. The second point. The second point is you want to understand how to live. So the first part of it has to do with your worldview. You want to understand how all of this fits together. The second part, the second layer of this is how do your actions derive out of this. One point that we had mentioned in the past, so we mentioned it quickly now when we talked about the existence of God. We talked about the argument that is usually referred to as the wager of Pascal or Pascal's wager. Pascal is a, is a philosopher and he presented this argument. But when we went through it, we actually said that we can find the same argument in the words of Imam Sadiq. Long story short, when a human being looks at something, when they evaluate if something is worth it or not, they don't only look at probability. So, if the argument of the person, it could be any of us, the person looking at the afterlife, the argument could be that the probability that there is an afterlife with heaven and hell and all these details that religions tell us about, the probability is very low. Very, very low. Let's say 1%. There's 99% probability that this is a lie. Fine. 1% left. There's 1% that this is true. When a human being looks at something to decide, do I do or do I not do? 
to assess the value of something, do I only look at the probability? No. I look at one more ingredient. I look at the value of what's at stake. If someone came and told you, there's 1% chance that you may win $10 million, which is kind of what happens all the time when people play the lottery. The chances are a lot less than that. It's not 1%. It's one in a million, one in 10 million, and sometimes less. Do they still put their money or no? They do. They will still give the money. Why? The probability is very low. Let's say it's 1%. It's not 1%. It's usually one in a million, for instance. But let's say it's 1%. If there's only 1% probability, why would anyone take of their money and put it in? Because they're not only looking at the 1% probability, which is very low. They're looking at one more ingredient. They're looking at what's at stake, the value of what's at stake. What's at stake is, for instance, $10 million. Is it worth it for me to lose that little bit of money for the 10 million? Yes. So mathematically, we don't want to go into the mathematics. You multiply, yes, it's 1%, but you have to multiply it by the value of whatever it is that's at stake. And the opposite. If someone, you're thirsty, and someone gives you a cup of water, and they tell you there's 1% chance, only 1% chance, that this water will kill you because it has poison in it. But it's only 1%. There's 99% chance this is just normal water. But there's 1% chance this is actually poison. Would you drink it? You wouldn't drink it. No one would drink it. They would say, I will not. What's at stake is my life. Yes, it's only 1%. But what's at stake is too big. What we're talking about, we can't only look at the probability. Yes, maybe the probability that all of this that we're talking about, that there is a hereafter, an afterlife, a heaven, and hell, let's say the probability is 1%. Not more, not less, okay? 1%. But what's at stake? What's at stake is eternity. So are you willing to wager? Are you willing to risk? Yes, 99%. Okay, put that aside. There's a 1% chance that it's true. Are you willing to wager that all of this eternity is worth putting aside just because the probability is low? And here's where you add to the part of, so what's the other alternative? What do you lose in living in a certain way? And what do you gain in living in another way? Here's where, you know, if we wanted to go through the argument, you have four possible outcomes. But all of them boil down to you have nothing to lose and you have everything to gain. The most you can lose is maybe a bit of restrictions in this life. But are they worth it? This is what you have to look at. Are they worth it if what you get in return is eternity? eternal life, eternal happiness. Are they worth 
those restrictions, are they worth it or not? Okay, so this is the, the argument from Pascal's wager that we apply here from, uh, from philosophy. Very quickly, the next topics. We said that we were gonna talk about the existence of the soul and what it means to be a human being. Is it this body or is there something else? We need to prove that before we talk about anything related to the afterlife, one. Two, we wanna see what are the big arguments against believing in the afterlife? Why would anyone not believe in the afterlife? We want to look at the nature of death and what happens after we die. And then what are the characteristics of the next life? What are the laws in place that govern that type of dimension, that type of world? Are they the same as the ones we have here or are they completely different? What type of world are we going into? There is a relationship between everything that happens in this life and everything that happens in that other life. What type of relationship is it? How do my actions in this life translate into things happening in the afterlife? What is the relationship between faith and action and how do we see that in the other world? Here faith is something abstract, internal in my heart and then there's actions. What happens in the afterlife? Is it the same or is it completely different? What happens with reward and punishment? So that, let's say I do something good, does it erase everything bad that I did? And let's say now after I did something good, I did something bad, does it erase everything good that I did? Or does it all remain there? Or do some things get canceled and erased and others I'm stuck with? And which ones and why? Because I need to know, let's say I lived my life a certain way, now I decide to change. Well, what happens to everything that was done before? Does it stay? Does it go? Do, does some of it stay and some of it go? How does that work? What about this big topic of intercession? That you have someone who can come and perform a shafa'ah. So how is that part of justice? How does that work when you're saying it's all about justice? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. So how does it work? And where's the justice if there's shafa'a that can happen? How can that work? And we can still say at the end that this is a just system. And the last link that I wanted to make, so inshallah, as I said, these are the next topics that we're going to get into. The last link that I wanted to make was that the topic of death the topic of the afterlife, as we're presenting it, we're concentrating on the theological dimension, the belief system dimension. The reason for this is that we want to make sure that when someone believes, when they say, I believe in Islam, I believe in religion, I believe in God, I believe in whatever, they understand why they believe what they believe. They know the reasons, the arguments for themselves, and for others, if someone tells you, is it because, you know, you just blindly follow whatever your religion says? No, I have reasons for that. And here they are. This is why I believe what I believe. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we've been trying to do since the beginning. But there's 
a parallel discussion that we really should be having, and inshallah we will have it eventually, specifically related to the topic of death and the afterlife. And this is more the spiritual dimension. A lot of people are always wondering, what should I do and how do I get more spirituality and how do I work on things that give me more spirituality so that I, I feel the presence of God and I want to be a better person, but not only at the level of the mind, so at the level of the heart. And there's, you know, entire courses and volumes and lectures about this topic. That's fine. And there's all sorts of strategies and plans that someone can put in place for this. That's very good too. The first step in that direction should start with the topic of death, always. This is what the Holy Prophet says. He says, remember death. If you want to move in that direction, if you want to work on your spirituality, start from death. You look at the words of Nahj al-Balagha, Imam Ali salam and the other Imams, there's an insistence on understanding death and what happens after death. So while we are not going to be concentrating on the spiritual dimension in every one of the lectures, we're going to try to inject it here and there. This I'm going to leave more to you. This maybe is something, and today we talked for a lot more than we're supposed to, inshallah, the next lectures will be a lot shorter and leave a lot more time for the discussion. Inshallah, this is where we're going to rise the, raise the spiritual dimension a lot more. You see, do you see the connection between what we're saying? For instance, the point of today was to understand the importance of the topic for your everyday life. That it changes the way you live. It changes your actions if you understand that there is an afterlife. Is this clear? And as we move through the topics, inshallah, the spiritual dimension of it becomes a lot clearer. There's a, a story in which Imam Ali salam, and we'll finish with this, we're told that this happened during his Khilafah. He was the Khalifa at that time, and there's someone who came to see him, and he was sitting, the Ruwaya says, in a dar. The dar could be a room or a house, a building. He came to see the Imam, and he says, I entered, and the Imam was seated, and there was nothing else except a hasira on which he was sitting. A hasira is basically a mat made of straw. People sometimes pray on it, they, they roll it up. But you come into a room where the Khalifa of the Islamic world is sitting. And at that time, the Islamic world was large and wide and rich and powerful. And you see the Khalifa of that world sitting in an empty room, sitting on a hasira. There's no furniture, there's nothing. And so the, the person says, I told Imam Ali salam, I told him, why don't you put a little bit of furniture in this house? And the Imam tells him, it is not something that the wise and smart person to do, the labib, as he says, a labib, the person who has wisdom, the person who has knowledge, is not someone who furnishes, who puts furniture in their temporal, and their temporary house. We are a people who have put our furnitures and our belongings and our wealth in our eternal houses. When the Arabs would travel, they would travel a lot. 
they would basically stop on the way and they would put up tents, they would put up temporal houses. You stay in it for one night and you move on. And then the next time you stop on your trip, you stay there for one night. Are you going to put furniture in the tent where you're staying one night as opposed to the building in which you live? No, you're just going to put the necessary things. Imam Ali salam is telling him, we are a people. If you're asking me why there is no furniture here, because if I have anything to invest, I want, it to, I want to invest it in my afterlife. What's necessary, I will do in this life. If you want to be a follower of Imam Ali salam, then this needs to be kind of at the forefront of how you think about this life. This does not mean, and this is an important thing, because sometimes the objection of those who want to say the religious people concentrate too much on the afterlife, no, the opposite. In our religion, there's as much insistence on this life as there is in the next. But as we said, it needs orientation. It needs a direction. And the direction is, I will do everything I need to do for this life, keeping in mind that it's all for one purpose, which is the afterlife. If you want to be a follower of Imam Ali salam, these are the types of things you need to keep in mind. That there is an investment to be made in this life, but the investment is for the next one, not for this one. We'll stop here for today, and inshallah, starting from uh, next week, we'll keep it a lot shorter and without technical difficulties. And we will, inshallah, leave a lot more room for, for a discussion, whether for the brothers and sisters who are online or the ones who make the trip in person here. If there's anyone online who has any questions, concerns, please go ahead and write them on the chat. I will read them as they come in. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to go to the brothers who are here in person. So you said during this, during uh, the presentation that some of the objections of the afterlife is why don't we aspire for a great paradise in this life? Uh, and like, so why do we have to work for something that's not that, that might not come. So you didn't answer. Is that for the next in the next lectures, or or did you answer and I missed it? So this was a, a it's a good question. This is one of the objections that sometimes people they object to believing in the afterlife, mm -hmm. and they say, why don't you concentrate on this life instead? Mm -hmm. We didn't really answer it directly. In short, we basically said the Quran considers that myths. And it considers that the flowery discourse that people trick others with because it's too clearly established that there is an afterlife. Okay? So that's not the direct answer, though. The direct answer, and this is part of the last point that I just made, which is there's kind of an assumption that because the religious person, as like the story we just said from Imam Ali because the religious person is so concerned with the afterlife, they're really not concerned about this life. So they're not spending any time building it and investing in developing it. So they're leaving that to the non-religious people to do, while the religious people just enjoy, you know, what the non-religious are doing. If there's anything to do, well, why don't we start with here, the, the life here? 
In short, the answer to this is that if you're talking about Islam, so I'll speak about Islam, Islam has put in place an entire system of the way you're supposed to live that includes all the dimensions of this life. It has an economic system, it has a, a political system, it has a social system, it has, it explains to you your rights and your responsibilities within your family, within your community, within your society, and so on and so forth. Why? So that even if you want to concentrate on only the afterlife, the way to do so goes through living life here and making sure that all your duties and your responsibilities are met. You still have a family to take care of, and you still have a community to contribute to, and you still have to think about those who have less than you in this world, and, and, and. Every dimension of life has been taken care of. That's if someone really wants to go, you know, all out in their belief in the other life. That's one. The other answer that I did not talk about at all, but I think it's very important, and this comes back again and again about religious topics. Religion is supposed to be about making you concentrate on your spirituality and your afterlife. It's not going to be pushing you more about this life because this happens on its own. I don't need to tell you go eat. So religion is not going to come and tell you you really have to eat, don't forget to eat. You feel it. You live it, you experience it, it's part of your biology, it's part of your material feelings in this life. It doesn't require anything more. Religion is not going to invest energy there. There's not much convincing to do. People are going to always lean towards making sure they have the most comfortable, luxurious, material lifestyle they can have. This is how, look at the history of humanity, it's all one long evolution in that direction. Religion doesn't need to insist more on this. It's going to happen on its own. Even with that said, religion has put things in place to make sure, you know, as we've mentioned in the past, for instance, people take great care in developing lands that are dead, or uh, agriculture, raising animals. There's a lot of hadith, ruayat related to this, for instance. So the claim that because you're religious, you're completely going to neglect this life or neglect yourself, it's false, especially, and for myself, if we're talking about Islam. If that is the case in other religions, it certainly is not in Islam, right? And so that's kind of the, the two big answers I would give to that. Yeah. It's a good question. And you caught it well. That, no, I did not answer it. I answered it Quranically, which is, the Quran is basically saying this is Zukhruf al-Qan. This is a trickery mm -hmm. that people use to deceive others. When the thing in itself is clearly true, there, it's clearly true that there's an afterlife. But then they come up with all sorts of arguments to say, this is myth, this is metaphor, this is, why don't you concentrate on this life instead? No, it's not this or, it's both together, as we believe. Yeah. I'm not seeing any questions online, so I think we're good and everything is clear here. Over there, I don't no, think there's anything. Problem. Okay, inshallah. Anything else here? I, I yes. About the belief, like, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so, basically, uh, this, this, there isn't really a such thing as saying I believe what I don't because um, there's no correlation be between what you say and and or and what's in your heart. Your actions pretty much show what you're 
what's in your heart. So typically, let's say if you believe in, in uh, and this, this goes back to certain certainty because the Quran also talks about certainty in, in people's hearts. But are you ever able to like when you when you believe more? Obviously, you're gonna act a different way uh, than if you don't believe in. Uh, and if you don't believe, you always have that doubt. I think uh, for the most part. And if you believe, you have less doubt. But could you ever re reach that certainty? Because if you reach certainty, you pretty much reach infallibility, or you either reach certainty in your pure evil. Uh, so, and but the Quran also talks about reaching certainty. So it's like, um, yeah. Okay. So there's a lot in that question. The first point, I think that one we can say very quickly, and we build on it always. Uh, belief is not a yes and no thing. It's not a black and white thing. Yeah. It's not you have belief or you don't. Belief is an infinite uh, spectrum uh, of degrees. Makes sense. So it's you're always moving in that. And it, there's no end to it. That's one. And that's why even someone like a prophet, after they are a prophet, they can keep raising their level of belief and their level of certainty. So certainty is also on that spectrum, and it's not one. That's one. Two, um, you said that there's no point in saying. It's all about the action. So that, not no point, but uh, like I'm saying between saying I believe or I don't, it's like there isn't, uh, I think obviously there's an importance in saying uh, I believe or I don't, but it's not just I believe or I don't because your actions will always be in the middle or on this side or on this side, right? So that's more like it. Yeah. yeah. And there, so the point I wanted to make, there's a couple of them. One of them has to do with the importance of saying. Yeah. I, so saying or, or it's not about the actual physical saying, but that's one level of saying. Yeah. Let, let's consider that, you know, part of expressing your belief. The way you express your belief at one level, it's with words, and that's fine, and that's important because, especially in a religion like ours that recognizes the practical, real dimension of, you know, speech, for instance, this has a role. It plays a role in society. Yeah. Hence the importance of saying. The second point related to that is you can never get to, you don't know what's in my heart, and I don't know what's in yours. So, what do I have to use? I can maybe look a little bit at your actions and I can look at your words and I can I have to rely on that now if you decide to lie or I decide to lie that's another but human beings in general you have to work with the external expressions of what's going on internally so that's another ingredient to keep in mind yeah um, is, is there still a sense of knowing what in, so, is in somebody else's heart like uh, because sometimes uh, there's there's obviously people that put up, not only just lie and say that they this or that, but they might put up an action in front of you just to show you that. It, but sometimes you can kind of feel the the lie. The lie, you know what I mean. So it's like at the same time, I don't know if it's a, like it's a a heart thing or it's just it's just a regular human nature. It is regular human nature. One, two. Uh, if you are a true believer, the true believer is not supposed to be tricked. Okay. So don't be naive. 
our religion does not want people to be naive. Okay, so inshallah this answers, although it answers indirectly, but I think it answers. Yeah. The last point is that the person who is a believer, we have a lot of narrations to this, and inshallah one day we have an akhlaq lesson where we go through these. Um, but we have a lot of narrations that basically the companions of the imams, they come to the imams and they ask them, like, I'm a believer, but I commit a sin. So then what? And the imams basically respond to them that while you are committing the sin, you are outside of belief. And then as soon as you repent, you remember and you repent, and you come back to your earlier state, you've come back into belief. And this is good and bad. It opens the door. It means that it doesn't disqualify you. The door is always open. It, it invites you to always come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I think it's also scary in the sense that, subhanAllah, if you die during that moment where you're performing the sin, then you know, you've stepped out of belief at that time. That's why we have narrations that say the believer does not perform a sin while being a believer. In that time, you're not a believer. And that's what we mean when we say, so you don't have real belief because you would not be able to perform the sin if you knew this is walking into hell, right? You, but at that moment, at that specific time, that's not how you're thinking. And this is where we say like, if someone could remind you at that time, to bring you back, they would bring you back to a state of belief. And perhaps at that moment, you have the knowledge, you have the logical knowledge, the rational knowledge, but you don't have the belief. And that's what allows you to perform the sin. But all that to say, I think to your question, um, it's not as linear. And even when we look at one person themselves, they are always changing. You may have more belief in the morning than you have at night, or in a season such as Shahar Ramadan or Shahar Muharram than the rest of the year. Or when you're around certain people or doing certain activities, like you go to Hajj. You're, and this is, this is supposed to be the point that now you see there are things that increase your level. So why don't you surround yourself with this a lot more so that your level stays always increased? Inshallah, this, this answers. I think this answers. Yeah. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. I think it's a, like I think it's on a separate note after like, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. If that if that's not what you meant, um, I think what you what you were saying is that the Quran sometimes uh, uh, says doesn't like doesn't say like when it says what we're gonna get if we're good in heaven. It doesn't mean that specifically. It just gives us imagery and stuff so that we can want it more. And so we can like compare it to ourselves more and same same way goes for punishment <clears throat> so i think like my opinion on that is why do we have to look at it as uh, like if the quran the quran is of course like all-knowing and it, it came down from an all-knowing from god so why 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 is it that like isn't it wrong for us to say that this is not the exact things that we're gonna get because if it's not and we're gonna get something better then we're, we didn't lose but the Quran meant for it to be in that way so that we can be mostly so we can be uh, motivated at, at the max level mm -hmm. so you see what I mean 
Yeah. So like, isn't it wrong for us to like, even though it's knowledge and it's truth, isn't that the best way it's presented to us and the seeing it in a different way might actually affect us badly? Even even. Yeah. So first point is, and I didn't talk about that today. What I meant is the whole topic of us having an afterlife. This is presented by some, those who reject an afterlife, who say there is no afterlife. They want to say when scriptures talk about the afterlife, it's all one big metaphor. The afterlife and the heaven and the hell are actually this life. Okay, so to incite you and motivate you to do good, we're going to tell you if you do good, something really good is going to happen to you after you die. But actually, it doesn't exist. That that all is just one big myth. Like they're cla they're claiming it's a lie. Exactly. Okay. So that's what we talked about today. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're asking about is when the Quran talks about certain types of punishment or certain types of reward. So mm -hmm. you've agreed with the Quran that there is an afterlife mm -hmm. and there is reward and there is punishment. But when the Quran talks about the details of it, do we understand those literally? Or do we understand those figuratively and metaphorically? So when the Quran says there's a garden with a river in it, and there's trees, and there is, and there is, and there is, is it really a garden with a tree and a river? Or is this a metaphor? And when it talks about this, this, and that in hell, is it really a fire, blaze, hell, flames, as the Quran is saying? Or is this a metaphor? The points that you raise are really good. This would require a good discussion, okay? Uh, I cannot tell you like this is the truth, either side. What I can tell you is, yeah, you need to understand both sides. On one side, you have the people who say what you're saying, end of story. On the other side, why do they say that maybe some of this is metaphors? Why? The first point is the things that are described in the Quran as being the, uh, like the epitome of you know, the, the maximum of pleasure and happiness described in the Quran, they are very suitable for people living 14 centuries ago as Bedouins and nomads of the Arab culture in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. They would have considered that as the maximum of happiness. Mm -hmm. But maybe if you were sent to another group of people who had gardens and rivers all the time, maybe in the jungles of Amazonia, mm -hmm. maybe that would not be such a you know, great thing for them because they live that every day. Mm -hmm. They would be looking for something else as their heaven. So when they've, some scholars, when they've looked at this, they say the Quran spoke to those people in their language and it gave them the images they need. Mm -hmm. But when you come to it, and then this applies to every human being, what I am going to imagine being my full pleasure and my full happiness may be different than yours. And what we know from heaven is that you are all going to receive, based on, of course, how good you were and so on and so forth, what goes with you, what works for you, what gives you the maximum happiness. But maybe yours and mine, even though we may be of the same culture, because of my cultural background and yours, my knowledge level and yours, my whatever and yours, this is not what I would want. I gave up everything that I gave up in life, not for this, but for something else. Mm -hmm. So do I get that or no? Am I still stuck with, you know, your garden and river? Okay, that's the second thing. The third point, I think, and this one is the really important one, mm -hmm. is that 
it's not only about me thinking and you thinking. This is all conjecture. What does the Holy Quran say? The Quran has verses where it talks and it gives you those specific details. Great. But then it also has other verses that tell you that maybe this is a metaphor. That this is Okay, so it's a method. Or there are verses that say, in the afterlife, what will await you, you can't comprehend here. So the only alternative left is the Quran tried to make us understand, but it's telling us you can never understand. I can't explain to you with words what is going to happen to you. We're going to recreate you in that which you can never know, unless you go there. So when you understand these verses and you put them without the others, with the others, you see that, okay, perhaps, I don't want to say it's a metaphor as in the Quran is just using flowery poetic language. So maybe there is a way to make both of them work. That it is like the Quran is saying, but maybe not like we imagine it. Because the Quran says we can't imagine it. It's another dimension. It's another reality. Right? You want to base it on your understanding of this earth and this heaven. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says all of this is going to be gone. Right? Okay, so if you look at all of this, you see it's a completely different universe, reality, realm, dimension, where the laws of here don't work there. But you still have those details. So, yeah, it's a really good question. Inshallah, we'll come to the details of that. We're good? Okay. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli